The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are joining the program today from Remote Outposts. Thank you for your service and for being with us again. In just a moment, National Security Advisor to President Reagan, Robert McFarlane, will be joining us. He's here to explain why the U.S. will have to put thousands of skilled military advisors on the ground to destroy ISIL. And more importantly, McFarlane's going to help us answer the question, given the scenario we now face, what would President Reagan do? But before McFarlane joins us today, let me tell you a little about his background. Robert Carl McFarlane was born in the great state of Texas and is a graduate of the Naval Academy at Annapolis, the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva, and the National War College. After graduating from the Naval Academy, he served as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He soon rose to executive assistant to the operations deputy, briefing the deputy for Joint Chiefs of Staff meetings, while also acting as action officer to NATO and the Middle East. McFarland served two tours in Vietnam and was the recipient of a Bronze Star and Navy Commendation Medal. In 1971, he became a White House Fellow and was later assigned to Henry Kissinger as military assistant for the National Security Council. From here, McFarlane went on to serve under President Ford as special assistant for national security affairs. In 79, McFarlane retired from the Marine Corps and was appointed to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Within two years, the Senate confirmed him as counselor to the Department of State, and by 82, Reagan named McFarlane Deputy National Security Advisor. One year later, McFarlane was appointed President Reagan's National Security Advisor. And I want to add that Mr. McFarlane is considered one of the primary architects of the Strategic Defense Initiative, otherwise nicknamed Star Wars. Since that time, McFarlane has founded the international consulting firm of McFarlane & Associates and served on the board of the Washington Institute of Near East Policy, the Set America Free Coalition, Partnership for a Secure America, and the Fuel Freedom Foundation and other organizations. And he co-founded the U.S. Energy Security Council with former CIA Director James Woolsey, who we've also heard from on this program. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, National Security Advisor to President Reagan, Mr. Robert McFarlane. Thank you for making time to speak with us today, Mr. McFarlane. It's a pleasure to join you. Now, I'd like to open our conversation today by asking you to comment on the continued airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. Uh, I think you recently said that it's going to take thousands of highly trained military personnel on the ground uh, and for a sustained period of time in order to stop ISIL. Is that right? Yes, the reality is that aviation will take you so far and is very valuable Having been on the battlefield myself, I always welcome sustained support from aircraft, especially when they can stay on station for a long time. However, the challenge right now is not only to defeat and destroy ISIS, but to recover that territory. And the only only way that you can take back and occupy territory is with ground people on the ground. Now, it's fair to say that that ought to come, those forces ought to come from the local countries, from Iraq, from other nearby neighbors that have an interest in getting rid of ISIS. And uh, so we ought to get a lot of volunteers from Saudi Arabia, from Iraq, from Jordan, from the Gulf states. However, they're going to need to be trained. You can't overnight expect 
people who haven't been in a war to be good at first knowing the enemy, where it is, how it behaves, and so forth. But once that's done, they can do most of the heavy lifting for taking back territory and defeating ISIS and uh, restoring some stability to the area. So the only people qualified really to do that training and that to be at their elbow once the battle is engaged are American special operations people who have done a terrific job in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they know how to conduct warfare there. They've been there for going on 10 years or more, and uh, there's just no way around that. Bombing can take you so far, but it can't recover, take, and hold territory. Now, the latest reports are is that uh, ISIS is still making gains in northern Iraq, uh, determined to topple Erbil and um, Baghdad. Yet at the same time, we have the U.S. saying that there are several, quote, lines of defense between ISIS and those cities. But, but reporters on the ground say that the factions which are fighting ISIS on the ground, they don't get along with each other. And so there's very little in the way of any coordinated front. And I believe you made the point that the United States is the only country that can organize and provide training and leadership in how these groups and the allied forces deploy. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to that for a moment. Well, one of the reasons, Rebecca, that we should have left substantial number of U.S. forces in Iraq is because we were uniquely able to bridge the gap between Sunni and Shia uh, personnel on the battlefield to engage Shia, but also Sunni tribal leaders, especially in Anbar province, where most of this fighting has been done thus far, and bring them to a state of mind where they're open to being trained and then to go into battle again with Americans with them in order to overturn uh, what has been lost territory already. But nobody else is qualified to do that. Not Gulf Arabs, not the Saudis, not the Jordanians or Turkey. And so we're really the uniquely qualified to do this, and it's in our interest to do it. Yeah, but why the U.S.? There's a lot of people that are probably saying, why, why does it have to be us providing the leadership, us putting the alliances together, us coordinating all of this movement? Why can't it be the United Kingdom, or why can't Canada step up? Well, to an extent, they can. There are excellent special forces, people that come from the United Kingdom and from Canada, And we should ask for their help, and I believe that they will provide it. But we have a history with some strength in numbers. People who have operated on the ground in this part of the world, and specifically in northern Iraq as well as Anbar province, and there just isn't that length of experience from any of the countries that you mentioned. So, yes, we ought to invite them to focus on doing training in third countries and nearby countries to get fighters ready to go once they're in country. Most, however, of the guidance and terrain engagement with the enemy is going to have to be done by Americans because we're the only ones who have been there, done that, and could do it again. I wonder how much of our minimizing the actual role we're going to have to play and the protracted involvement uh, is affected by uh, the the aftermath of Vietnam, not this desire to at all costs avoid some protracted involvement as we had in Vietnam. What do you think about that? Well, I think you make a very good point. There's no doubting that Americans properly don't have a, a lot of tolerance for having their sons, brothers, husbands overseas at a war. And it's a natural sentiment, and that we would also like to see, as you've already mentioned, others pulling their share of the load, because it's not uniquely an American interest. Everybody That's right. has a stake That's in right. turning back these uh, barbarians and 
coping with al-Qaeda and all of its affiliates. So it's not only American interests that are being preserved here, mm-hmm. but I do think that we're going to have to step up to leading this organization of a coalition of uh, the UK, of the European countries, ourselves, as well as the Gulf Arabs, the Saudis. Now, we're going to have to take a short break, but we will be right back to continue that thought in just a moment. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata. As a scientist who works hard to stay on top of current events and trends, I know how easy it is to get caught up in the details of a story and lose sight of the big picture. What is happening to society as a whole? Where are we headed? Why does it feel as if there's greater instability, unrest, and danger in the world? The truth is, very few of us have time to contemplate these questions. And if we're waiting for our leaders or the media to paint a clear picture, well, we may be in for a long wait. That's why I'm urging you to grab a copy of The Watchman's rattle do it now go to rebeccacosta.com find out why scientists government leaders and the heads of the largest corporations in america are waking up to a newly uncovered pattern of human behavior that's the watchman's rattle at rebeccacosta.com a bestseller in 26 countries and a book that richard branson donald trump and experts everywhere are calling a must read that's the watchman's rattle available at bookstores everywhere and online at rebeccacosta.com Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. So many people want to start a weightlifting program, but they're intimidated, it takes too much time. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't take a lot of time if you do it correctly. The key to a good, fast, rapid workout, effective workout, is intensity and not using momentum, exploiting all the different angles in your muscle movement. As you're doing your curl, your arms are obviously changing angles. You're starting with your arm hanging down and then you curl upwards and it goes into a 90 degree position and then it goes up and up and up. If you take this muscle movement, you could divide it up into a hundred, a thousand different parts. If you take your muscle movement and go really, really slow, if you take 30 seconds to do a curl, you're going to find that you can't even do one or two curls. If you're one of those people out there in the gym and you're doing a 50 pound dumbbell curl and you're doing four, five or ten reps with a 50 pound dumbbell, dumbbell, if you do your curls the correct way, where you maximize every single position in the curl movement, you're not even going to be able to use 5 pounds or 10 pounds. If you're doing abdominal exercises, crunchers or sit-ups, and you're doing 100 sit-ups or 50 sit-ups, and guaranteed you're not doing those correctly. You should only be able to do 5 or 10 max abdominal crunchers if you're doing them correctly. And you do them correctly by exploiting every single muscle movement position. And it doesn't have to be with curls and it doesn't have to be with abdominals. You can do it just sitting up. So the trick to an efficient workout is to spend as much time in high resistance positions as possible. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com Health.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today was National Security Advisor to President Reagan, Robert McFarlane. And before the break, uh, you were saying that even though our experience in Vietnam may make us reluctant 
to accept the fact that we need thousands of military advisors on the ground, and this is not a campaign that will end anytime soon. We have to be realistic that the United States may be the only country that can lead this effort against ISIS. And we, I'm, I'm sorry, we had to take a scheduled break, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish that thought. Well, to note it again, that none of us like to have our young men and women overseas in harm's way. I think, however, it is important for us to think about our long-term interests and what it has taken, for example, in Korea, in Germany, in Japan, to enable those countries to rise to the level that they have had already reached. It's going to take time. Uh, The nature of our interest in Iraq and the Middle East more broadly is to try to inject a measure of stability and specifically to eliminate a threat that truly does threaten stability in the United States. And it's the threat of radical Islam. This is not all Muslims by any means. It's probably less than 1%. But that's already 10 million people. The commitment that al-Qaeda, ISIS, other affiliates have made is for the destruction of all infidels. And not only we qualify as infidels in their view, but anyone that is a Muslim that doesn't have the same interpretation of the Quran that they do. And this is coming at us at a time when weapons of mass destruction are available now to them in the way of chemical and biological weapons. They've already achieved substantial sophistication and have overrun bases in Syria where they have uh, what are called man pads, man portable air defense systems, or systems you can fire from the shoulder to take down a commercial aircraft. Mm -hmm. So with very little sophistication, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, others can come across the Mexican border, and before long, we have a genuine threat of taking down American commercial airliners here, or for that matter, a more easy proposition is for them to do it in Dubai, where United Delta, other American carriers are flying. So our own safety is what is at stake here. It's going to be a long proposition. I think we can probably bring down ISIS here between three and five years' time. But the threat is at least 30 countries where this kind of Muslim cell of radical Islamists exist. They are well-financed, well-trained, committed, and we simply have to step up and deal with it. We can do this, however, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Our special operations people are extremely well trained to do this. It's just going to take time. Now, uh, I agree with you. Uh, it's, this is not something we can't accomplish, but I do think it's been minimized and understated what the real effort is required. And I know that you and I are in complete agreement as to the Colin Powell theory. Uh, you want to do everything possible not to involve the United States, but once you do, you have to do, you have to commit to whatever's required to uh, to resolve the situation. Now, recently you were asked about comparisons between the Cold War and the ongoing instability in the Middle East, and, and very surprisingly you said that you thought there was very little comparison. You, uh, you made the point that one was a state-sponsored terrorism and the other is ideologically based. Um, can you talk about that distinction for a moment and how quashing the latter has to be handled very differently? Well, yes, um, the very uh, outrageous ideology of radical Islam is to deny the legitimacy of any other faith but their own. And uh, they are guarding no territory. They seek no territory. And unlike the Cold War, when we were dis deployed opposite a fairly definitive line in Europe 
where the forces were conventional forces on one side, on both sides, and we knew where the enemy was, and ideologically, with the Russians, we knew the weaknesses of their ideology and could counter it with truth. Well, here we're dealing with a enemy that makes no claim, seeks no territory. In addition, an enemy that is sees dying in behalf of this misguided, outrageous ideology as vindication, as the ultimate blessing of life is to die for their particular misguided Islamic creed. So you have to first know thine enemy, as the Chinese master of strategy, Sun Tzu, said, and in this case, it's a very, very different enemy. It's not a conventional enemy with tanks, aircraft, like the Russians. This one comes at you with barbarism, but making no claim that he wants to take and hold territory. It wants to rid the Middle East of any Western presence and ultimately establish a caliphate or a world governance which they intend to try to head. And you know, this sounds so surreal for you and I to be talking about this. How could anyone realistically believe that such a movement could get legs and actually take root? Well, I think you just have to go back to examples like Hitler. And in 1931, here was somebody who had been a corporal in the military and had a kind of a rhetorical flair about him, but we know what happened. Mm-hmm. Ideas can flourish if they're not countered by truth. And we've got to do a lot of truth-telling to the people of the Middle East here in the next few years. Well, on the other hand, uh, much of this violence has... Um uh, in some way uh, caused a, lo- a great deal of the Muslim population to turn against ISIS um, because the larger part of the Muslim community is opposed to violence. So um, I guess it addresses the question, you know, that we can we can talk about when we come back from this next scheduled break. But, you know, how much of the of this is a matter of the Muslim community itself to address and uh, the native populations inside this uh, these countries? I I think you've made a very good point. They're not necessarily trained. Uh, They don't have the skill level that our special forces have, uh, but they could be trained uh, and they could be um, they could build a very sophisticated civilian army and uh, in the long run that's what we want to have happen but to your point that doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen without putting uh, american skilled military forces on the ground so we're going to go ahead and take that uh, break and we'll be right back Uh, stay right where you are we'll hear more from robert mcfarland you're listening to the costa report No matter what business you're in, what happens in Washington can make the difference between business success or failure. That's why understanding where government is headed is so important in today's competitive business environment. But where can you find experts who know firsthand the inner workings of our nation's capital? The American Program Bureau is your leading source for speakers whose experience offer unique insights into where U.S. policy is headed. Speakers like Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and General Carl Eikenberry, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. For your next meeting or conference, contact the American Program Bureau at apbspeakers.com or 617-614-1600. That's apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. Do you live with stress? If you have nervousness or common everyday anxiety, we're looking for you. Because right now we're sending risk-free supplies of a fast-acting supplement to listeners of this station. You heard right. Every listener who calls right now 
will learn how to get a risk-free bottle of Stress Block, a naturally derived formula that promotes feelings of calmness, alertness, and focus in just moments. Supplies for this risk-free offer are limited, so don't wait. Just call 1-800-694-7786. Stress Block is a fast-acting, non-prescription formula to support relaxation without causing drowsiness. Your nervousness is guaranteed to begin fading like magic in just minutes. This special risk-free offer is for listeners of this station, but it won't last. Call us now for this exclusive Stress Block risk-free offer. Just call 1-800-694-7786. That's 1-800-694-7786. Call 1-800-694-7786. Hey, thank you all for supporting People's Coffee. I'm uh, Kurt, the owner here. We're on the corner of 17th and Bromer in Live Oak Plaza. Wow, we just made seven years. So we're here to stay. We're not going anywhere. We put out an amazing cup of coffee. If you haven't been down to check us out, take a moment. We don't disappoint. We care about your happiness. People's Coffee, corner of 17th and Bromer. We will not let you down. We always knew Dr. Guy Peabody to be an excellent dentist, and so we're not surprised when, once again, Dr. Peabody was voted best dentist in Santa Cruz County in the Good Times Reader's Poll. But you do not need a Reader's Poll to know how good Dr. Peabody is. Just ask his patients. Hi, I'm Robert. I have found Dr. Peabody to be a wonderful dentist, and I would most highly recommend him to anyone. My name's Ramona. My dentistry has never been better. I have beautiful teeth now. It was a very comfortable, delightful experience, and I would recommend them to anyone. My name is Terry. I am terrified of going to the dentist, and they told me about the Guy Peabody, sedated dentistry. They're really great people. Visit drpeabody.com, that's drpeabody.com, or better yet, give Dr. Peabody's office a call at 457-0343 and be warmly welcomed and assisted in scheduling your appointment. That's 457-0343. You will be happy you called Santa Cruz's choice for best dentist. Hi, this is Sean. And I'm Steph. Join us Saturdays at 7 p.m. for Out in Santa Cruz as we share our views of the LGBTQ community and the issues and insanity of the week. Only on KSEO 1080 AM. Like us on Facebook.com slash Out in Santa Cruz. Listen to past episodes at OutInSantaCruz.com. I'm Sean. And I'm Steph. And And you've been been queered. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Robert McFarlane. And Mr. McFarlane, as you said earlier, uh, you are in support of the president's decision to conduct airstrikes and also to bring together a, a coalition. Uh, but as National Security Advisor to President Reagan, you worked side by side with the president, and you know how Reagan viewed the threat from Russia and also the instability in the Middle East. Any thoughts on how Reagan would have handled the current situation? Well, Rebecca, I think it ought to first be noted that had President Reagan been in office right now, we wouldn't be where we are. It was manifestly evident to everybody who had ever been in a war, and indeed our own military leadership, as we began to draw down from Iraq, that the Iraqi forces weren't yet fully qualified to be able to maintain security in the country, and that there was still an issue of sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia. And so President Reagan would have assured that a status of forces agreement was negotiated with the Iraqi government, He also would have done a better job in the diplomatic side of things by avoiding the emergence of this really unqualified leader, uh, Prime Minister Maliki. It takes subtle diplomacy to be able to work behind the scenes to affect how local leaders choose who's going to be the prime minister. But at the end of the day, what was missing, what is missing, is our having remained as the glue that holds together stability in the country while we continue to train up the Iraqi armed forces 
so that they could do the job. And having completely pulled out all of our combat elements, that training program was virtually eliminated. And as a consequence, we sent a signal to both the Sunnis and the Shia that they couldn't count on us and that they could resume the sectarian warfare with militias being formed on both sides. And uh, it was an open invitation to ISIS. Here was a vulnerable country. Here was a place they could turn into what Afghanistan had been for al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden 10 years ago, a safe haven, a place to grow the organization. Well, Well, I I have to say... um Mr. McFarlane, I, I, I was confused by the, uh, the quick drawdown of troops in Iraq. And, and so let's talk about that for a moment, because I mean, we left troops in Germany, we left them in Korea, we left them in Japan. We know that, that you have to leave troops behind to have stability. This history, military history has proven this, and every general that was involved in uh, the, the campaign in Iraq uh, claimed that the Iraqi military was not ready. I mean, there wasn't a single one that said they were. Why did we pull down so quickly? Why did we pull out all the troops, in your view? Well, it was because of uh, the feckless way in which we conducted our diplomacy in failing to get a status of forces agreement that assured, protected, really, whatever forces we have in the country against being abused by capricious Iraqi law that could hold accountable American soldiers for doing something that is is inevitable in conflict. There's always going to be violence, even when you're trying to simply train the local military. There's going to be accidents and things like that. Mm -hmm. You've got to negotiate an agreement where our troops are protected against kind of uh, capricious lawsuits, and that ought to have been relatively easy to do. We've done it in every country, the ones you've mentioned, from of course. Korea to Germany. Of course. It's uh, taken for granted as a an imperative, and the failure to do that was just bad leadership on our side and the White House, and uh, every military leader, as you say, recognizes it was a signal of our own unreliability and of our anxiety to get out of the country as if we'd never experienced warfare before. It was just a thoroughly incompetent performance. Well, now, your answer is is that we wouldn't be in the position we're in right now were Reagan in office. I understand that, but uh, let's deal with the position we are in right now. Do we need to ask for a declaration of war against ISIS, in your opinion? Well, the short answer is yes, but... And I don't mean to blow smoke at you. The but comes because we have an urgent need to turn the tide against this barbaric force in Iraq, ISIS. Debates over policy, as you know from the past six years in our country, can tie up action forever and ever. That's right. And as a consequence, we'd never get any appropriation, we'd never get any deployment and actual turning the tide with people engaged in killing and defeating uh, ISIS. So, yes, I'd love to see a declaration of war. Well, there's a lot of listeners that don't know that once a declaration of war is made, then uh, the definition of enemy combatant comes into play. There are lots of things, not not only uh, uh, funding from Congress and support from Congress. There are a lot of things that come into play that uh, are are subject to political debate today without that declaration of war. Well, you're spot on. That is exactly right. And so that kind of sustained debate, which could enable us to operate much more effectively, nevertheless takes a long, long time. Yeah, well, you know, I just, uh, I'd rather call it for what it is. Uh, if we're going to war, you know, nobody wants that. I understand that. I, I am the least of all. I, I have a son of my own. And uh, do I want to see him uh, going off to war? No, I do not. 
but I also know the dangers inside our own country of not calling a war effort a war effort, and uh, how, and particularly how Washington D.C. is operating today. I think it just falls into a quagmire, and we're now going to debate every uh, every punctuation mark of every bill uh, of every appropriation, and uh, and it just simply doesn't work on a functional basis, uh, which is which is quite a. Which, it's, it's quite a shame. So let's talk about the big elephant in the room. It takes a lot of money to fund a movement, let alone a war. And we know that one of the largest sources of money to purchase weapons and pay soldiers uh, comes from the sale of oil to the United States. So I know you've been very active in uh, energy independence of this country. Uh, how close are we to energy independence? And by, and by the way, I only have a few minutes in this segment, but I'm going to carry that discussion over into the next segment when we go to break. Well, it's been a phenomenal windfall, this technology that enables us to produce far more oil and natural gas from existing wells and from new wells. So it is a huge blessing for us. And yet we do have to remember that even as we produce more, which is good, the fact is that ownership and control over more than 75%, three-fourths of all the oil on the planet is owned by the OPEC cartel. These are the 14 countries primarily in the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and so forth. And they are the ones that really set the price of oil. Now, the, the drop recently in the price has been helped by the fact that we are producing more from the United States. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, we have found also that uh, demand has been going down in China simply because the economy is not as strong as it has been. Same with India and some of the emerging markets that have been consuming most of the oil in the past with China and India. So... That's a kind of a, a unique temporary phenomenon. Now let's talk some more about this after the break. Yeah, let, let's talk about it after the break because it's true. As the prices have come down and demand has come down, it's a little bit like we've got the boot on the neck of funding to terrorists. Uh, but uh, that boot isn't going to stay on that neck for very long as economies continue to improve. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. We're fortunate to have Scott Caraccioli with us to explain how the process of making sparkling wines influences a winemaker's approach to making a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's really a driving factor in terms of style and really kind of making it a little bit more old world. Um, we use all French oak, which is the same thing that we use in our sparkling wines. So I would imagine that someone who's not making sparkling wines will take a totally different approach. Yeah, it's a matter of viewpoint when it comes down to when you have a French winemaker making bubbles, you end up with a leaner, more European style of wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where you have to spell it to drink it.
Physicians Medical Group of Santa Cruz, independent physicians for independent people. Consider this, hundreds of doctors in Santa Cruz all working together to provide the care that is right for you. It's the reality for PMG patients. Since we're independent, we're free to employ best practices right away, saving you time, money, and delivering the best outcome through communication. Visit pmgscc.com. Hey, buddy, it's me, your laptop. That's right, your little modern marvel of technology you've been abusing for months. Dude, we need to talk. Do you really think that those free PC Fix-It programs are any match for today's spyware and malware? Not to mention the NSA and some of those websites you've been visiting. Now, I'm not here to judge, I'm just saying. You need to take me to Peter and the friendly staff at User-Friendly Computing to get me back into tip-top shape. Tired of unfriendly computer support, slow computer, viruses, spyware? No problem. Call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. We give you a choice. Drop your computer by the shop, or we'll come to you. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. This is trial attorney and Monterey College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner. You may have heard me provide legal commentary on the Costa Report and Good Morning Monterey Bay. I now invite you to join me on Saturdays from 4 to 5 p.m. as I co-host Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a legal talk show dedicated to the objective and constructive criticism of the laws that shape and shake our nation right here on KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today my guest is the National Security Advisor to President Reagan, uh, Robert McFarlane. And before the break, we were discussing the control of oil which OPEC countries have and uh, how this is how terrorism is uh, primarily funded. Uh, So energy independence is one way that the United States can combat enemy organizations like ISIS. Um, So you wanted to continue that thought. Yes, Rebecca, the way that OPEC can control the price of oil is by the amount that they produce collectively. When you own three-fourths of all the oil in the world, you can afford to pause, don't produce as much, and then because the rest of the world, specifically the United States, isn't producing enough for the entire world, The competition, the demand from China, India, and all of the other countries who need oil pushes the price just beyond imagination. You know what it felt like only seven years ago when the price of oil was $147, and it quickly pushed us into a very serious recession. So how do you beat a cartel? How can you take away that strategic status of oil and the power of OPEC. Well, the only way that economists have ever conceived for doing that is to introduce competition. I mean, the reason that you and I can go to the grocery and have 50 kinds of cereal and so forth, and it's cheap, is because there are 50 kinds. But there's only one thing when you go to the gas station, and it's based upon oil. So are there any viable, functional alternatives to drive automobiles, airplanes, and ships. Yes, that's the good news. Finally, with this windfall discovery of natural gas, you can use that. It's expensive to convert your car to be able to use natural gas, and the infrastructure that we're all used to using is to use a liquid fuel. The good news is you can turn natural gas into a liquid. It's called methanol. And in fact, it's a terrific fuel that race car drivers have been using for years. Methanol is a high-octane fuel at about 105 octane. When you go to the gas station today, the one that you have a choice for never gets above 93. But methanol is terrific. It's cleaner and it's cheaper 
and it enables your car to run quite a bit better. So we just got to get busy and do it. Well, we have a lot of alternatives. You, you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Oil Man T Boone Pickens' plan. Uh, he he, I think almost ten years ago. He put a plan out there and he said, all we got to do is take 8 million 18 wheelers, which are traveling up and down the interstate highways, convert them to natural gas, which could be done within one year, and it would completely wean us off of OPEC imports. And according to his calculations, by the way, it even gets better. The ROI on the on the engine conversion was about one year's worth of fuel savings. Now, to me, when I read that plan, and I read that plan a decade ago, that seemed like a no-brainer to me. It's better for the environment. It's cheaper for companies. It's safer. That's a program we could all understand, and it's doable. So why don't we jump? We, we've got solutions. We know what to do. Why, why are we not jumping on these things? Tell me. Well, first of all, Boone Pickens is just a, a very visionary guy. He is a member of my council at a real risk taker who's using primarily his own money to do exactly what you just summarized. That is to enable converting every 18 wheeler on the road to be able to run on natural gas. But here's a program our government could put into place immediately tomorrow. They could say, we're going to subsidize the conversion of these engines and uh, and we're going to give you a zero interest loan to do it because uh, you can pay off the conversion of the engine in fuel savings in a year. Well, why not do a, a national program like that? Well, the good news is, the really good news is that you don't even have to do that and spend one penny of your money or mine. How do you do that? First of all, the people who run 18-wheelers and interstate transport realize that because every one of those trucks is going to drive a quarter of a million miles a year, that the conversion cost to make that truck able to burn natural gas, which is about 20000 even $30,000 per vehicle, they're going to get it back in no time. Well, right. get it back in less than two years because the cost of natural gas is about one-fifth, if you please the cost of diesel. So it makes sense. However, for you, Rebecca, for me, for 240 million American car owners, the cost of converting your car and mine, which is about five to $8,000 per vehicle, mm-hmm. is probably a deal breaker when you go to buy a new car. So it would have to be a government subsidy. And that's why I recommend that in addition to doing what Boone is doing to enable the 18 wheelers to run right to enable everybody else to be able to benefit from all this natural gas turn it into a liquid that's what we've always used in our cars Mm -hmm. and it's easy to do and you'll end up with a cheaper fuel a better fuel and ultimately drive OPEC out of business. And, and it, yeah, that's right. It's a double win. It's, it's not only a cleaner fuel and, and a fuel that we have an abundance of, but it's also a blow to terrorism. And to me, uh, I, I can't think of a better action the government could take. Unfortunately, Mr. McFarlane, I, I could keep you here for several hours because I didn't even get a chance to touch on the situation in the Ukraine. And I know that you, there's a lot that we could talk about there. But unfortunately, we are all out of time here. But before we say goodbye, I want to ask you if you have a website or a place where our listeners can go to uh, hear more about your work. Well, yes. If you go to USESC, which stands for United States Energy Security Council.org, you'll get a full brief on not only who our members are, who are cabinet officers, Nobel laureates, and others, but what specifically have we published that tells you what I've been summarizing here in greater detail. But, I'd love to do it again with you, Rebecca, whenever you have time and 
Absolutely. I, I hope you'll come back soon and, and please give my regards to T Boone. I, I again wherever I go I I bring up that Pickens plan because that you know, I, I was a fan of it ten years ago and he was on my program earlier this year and uh when we got all done he said, Let's you and I go hit the road, Rebecca <laughs> and, and 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 I said, No, nah, I'm too old for that and so are you <laughs> So uh but I'm I'm glad to hear that you're teaming up together and uh, before we let you go I, I do want to take a moment to thank you for your service to our country and for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you, Mr. McFarland. Always a pleasure. We're about to have the 239th birthday of the Marine Corps, so Semper Fi. Semper Fi, that's right. Thank you so much. If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Robert McFarland today, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Not only did McFarland speak from his experience during the Cold War, but also from his experience during the Vietnam War. So when he says we need thousands of skilled advisors on the ground to defeat ISIL uh, and that we're looking at a protracted effort. Uh, It behooves us to listen up. And if McFarlane is right, then what exactly is our tolerance for another war effort in the Middle East? I I know that uh, you have opinions about this, so let me hear from you. Send your comments to me at RebeccaCosta.com. That's my name.com. Just click on the word contact at the top of the homepage, and it'll take you right over to a, a big white box where you can leave your remarks. And if you missed the full interview with McFarlane or any of our other previous guests, remember you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel anytime, anywhere. We keep episodes up on the website for three and four years. They're all right there for you to peruse at RebeccaCosta.com. Uh, so that's also where you'll find our new weekly radio blog, which, by the way, it, it's brand new. It's only been up a couple of months, uh, and it captures the top headline from every interview that we've had. So uh, you never have to miss a program. You can, And if you do, you can still grab the main highlights on the radio blog. My guest next week is one of our country's greatest legal scholars. Alan Dershowitz will be here to talk about his controversial new book, Terror Tunnels, the case for Israel's just war against Hamas. Has Dershowitz gone too far? Well, find out next week when the always outspoken Alan Dershowitz joins us on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management.